Okay, let's open up the Bible to we'll read from Acts 2 uh, to begin with. Um, verse 42, the end of Acts 2. We've been working in a series called Radical Devotion. And uh, the intention of the series is to try and look at some of the signs that indicate to you uh, that a church has life in it. If you were to come across a body, whether in a state of sleep or uh, unconsciousness, you would look for certain signs to know that a person is alive. Heat emanating from the skin, breath, a pulse, these kinds of things. In the same way, uh, churches exhibit certain signs that they are alive, that God is at work, that there is something genuine and authentic going on in the life of the community. And this passage at the end of Acts 2, which is at the very birth of the church, the Holy Spirit has come down and, and really the thing has just begun. And uh, this local church in Jerusalem has grown exponentially to thousands in strength. But there is a robustness to the church life. It's not a, a mere crowd. Uh, there's something very authentic and genuine in their spiritual life together. And we've been looking at some of the core elements of what they showed. And so we read from verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the first thing, that their church established upon the word of God, and it's absolutely foundational. And the fellowship, that they experienced the love of a community, life together. Many of you know we spent uh, three days in, in the hospital this week due to the miscarriage of a 15-week-old baby, and uh, it, it was encouraging to me on a couple of levels the amount of love and support we experienced from the church not only personally and emotionally encouraging, but also as a pastor, because it shows me that there is life in this church, um, that we are a family, and that it's not a mere crowd. It's an amazing experience when you feel God's people come around you. It says, and the, to the breaking of bread, that at the center of the church's life was a focus upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins, raised from the dead, that we could have life center moment of history. And the prayers, which is what we're going to consider today. It says, all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. Over in Psalm 130, I wanted to read this to you because it's just a beautiful example of one of the prayers that the early Christians were likely to have prayed. It's one of the Psalms of Ascent um, that they would pray at a certain time of year. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I know that um, all of us are in a different sort of spiritual condition. Some of you are Christians, been Christians for years. Some of you are seekers. 
And so um, I understand that aspects of what I say to you will apply in different ways. But for those of us who are Christians, the, the urge to pray is an instinctive thing. It's deeply embedded in us because we feel the need to pray. We feel something of the call of obedience. You know, there's an element of duty in that, that we've been commanded by Christ to be prayerful people. And we also feel an aspiration when we consider what a prayerful person can become. We aspire to, be, to grow in, in prayerfulness. I think that would be true for everyone here who loves Christ. And you may at that point reflect on yourself and think, well, I, I'm not sure that I have um, <clears throat> a particularly strong impetus or impulse to pray. And my first word to you is that if you have absolutely no desire to pray, you know, what comes before prayer is a relationship with God. Prayer is, in many ways, the fruit of an existing, living relationship with the God who made you. And if you have no impulse or no instinct or no desire to pray, you need to work backwards and consider what kind of spiritual life you have, if there is any spiritual life. Christ has made it possible for you to know God personally. And everything that I'm saying to you today about prayer is available to you if and when you decide that you must come to know God personally, which is what it means to become a Christian. I want to leave you with that thought before I speak into this aspect of prayer. Now, prayer itself, there's a huge challenge and difficulty when we, as a church, think about and speak about prayer. I feel it myself as a preacher. It's very hard at one level to preach on the subject of prayer for the simple reason that I'm not much different from the experience most of you have in that prayer, there's often and constantly a sense of inadequacy in my own life in, in this aspect of my spiritual walk. I seek to pray. I call myself to pray. Prayer is at the heart of my relationship with God. Nevertheless, there's always that sense that there are depths yet to be plumbed, Right? And it's therefore difficult even just to preach on the subject. But I'm also conscious of the effect of speaking about prayer can have on, on us. And that many of you might feel something of the guilt that comes through your prayerlessness. You want to do it, but you struggle to summon the discipline or the consistency to be a prayerful person. And I'm very aware of this when I open up this subject. I'm not wanting to be heavy. I'm not wanting to, you to walk out condemned or feeling struck down or feeling utterly useless. That would be the very last thing I want. It's weird because when you think about it, prayer in and of itself shouldn't be difficult. The mechanics of prayer are fairly straightforward. You find a place alone. You can close your eyes or not. It's up to you. You can kneel or you can stand or you can sit. It doesn't really matter. And all you need to do is start speaking to the Father. Now, all of us can speak. So in and of itself, it shouldn't be a difficult thing to pray. You break it down into its constituent elements. You think, what is it about prayer that's hard? None of these things seems difficult, does it, in and of itself? The mechanics of prayer are very straightforward. And yet, in our experience, it's not a simple thing to pray, is it? I think you can think of analogies here in other parts of your life. You ever experience the challenge of apologizing to someone for something you did wrong? The mechanics of, a, of saying an apology are very, very simple. 
I'm sorry, I did wrong. That's all you need to say. But actually getting yourself to utter those words can be an enormous challenge to overcome in your own spirit, can't it? Especially if you're a prideful person or you feel a little bit defensive or any of those things. Or confronting a boss. Say your boss at work has done something, made a stupid error or something like that, and you feel it's your place to respectfully confront them. Again, the mechanics of it are very simple. You tell them what they've done wrong. You tell them honestly and openly. Yet, to actually summon the courage to do it is a difficult thing. To ask someone on a date, the mechanics of it are very simple. But very few people could stop themselves from experiencing the sense of being flustered, nervous, inadequate, um, unless you you absolutely have unbelievable self-confidence, right? But generally speaking, most of you understand what I mean. The mechanics of it are simple. The doing of it is not so simple for some reason. And I think when you consider prayer, the same, I think all of us must identify with this. Whatever it is, there's a challenge to it, isn't there, to do it consistently well and to maintain a, 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 a good, solid prayer life. Whether it's because there's a spiritual battle element, perhaps, that there is, Paul talked about us um, doing, doing battle with heavenly powers or dark powers of spiritual powers, that there is a spiritual battle element, that there's a faith element. That really, I think, when you boil it all down, people would pray if they believe that prayer works. And our failure to pray usually comes down to a lack of belief in the efficacy of prayer. If you really believed that what you were doing was, was sincere or genuine, that you were standing before the God of the universe and he was listening to you, nothing could stop you from praying, Right? So there are all kinds of things that go into this and make it difficult. I don't have time to explore all of those things. It could be shame for you, the sense that you don't feel worthy. Whatever it is that makes it difficult, my hope and intention in opening up what it means for the the church to be devoted to, as it puts it, the prayers, is to inspire and motivate you today. God wants you to be a prayerful person. He wants us to be a prayerful church. So here's where I want to begin. I want to begin, first of all, by showing you that the Bible shows us the power, the potency of prayer in the lives of prayerful individuals. I think you know this already, but I want to show you a bunch of examples. And here's some of the common threads. That when, you, when you consider some of the most prayerful people in the scriptures, here are the things that they have in common. That they, as a result of a living prayer life, they have an enjoyment of God that they experience delight and intimacy and happiness in their relationship with God. In a sense, the the duty element fades away as the enjoyment increases. You can experience this in other parts of your life, can't you? That when you determine and discipline yourself to pursue something, eventually what felt like a drudgery at first can become fueled with delight. And that's one thing that these individuals all have in common. Another, that they frequently have in common is a the impact of their lives that these prayerful individuals i'm going to describe for you seem to have had a disproportionate effect on even on the course of history for some of them and even if it's not directly in through their own lives and their lives actions their prayerfulness gave birth to that kind of fruit in the lives of others that there was impact and leadership and world-changing power that came 
to bear through the lives of these prayerful people as we see in the Bible and, of course, through history. And I think another element that you see in common with all these prayerful people is that they experience something of the reward and favor of God in life. His face shining upon them, as the Bible puts it. That, that their, their way goes well in certain respects. Not always, of course. God allows us to experience opposition. So those are some of the things that you see in common. Let me just describe to you some of the examples of very prayerful people throughout the Scriptures. The first is a man called Enoch. Right at the start of the Bible, there's a long genealogy. The sons of Adam as they descended. And there's a little pause when he gets to a man called Enoch. He just says these words. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When he uses this expression that he walked with God, it's what you'd call a Hebraism, a Hebrew way of speaking. It actually only occurs in describing individuals twice in the Bible, about Enoch and later about Noah. But what it means is is something, I think, a little bit like the way we use the expression today, that you do life together. That there was that constant sense of contact between Enoch and his communion and intimacy with the living God. Uh, Moment by moment, day by day, week by week, year by year, that there was a there was an unbroken experience of fellowship with God. I think that's what the, the expression means, that he walked with God. One of the, the close analogies where the words are used is of the priests in the Old Testament system where you had the temple. It, it describes their entry into the Holy of Holies, the most precious part of the temple where God's presence was, as walking with God. And therefore, it's almost like Enoch lived in a sense of the unbroken experience of the presence of God throughout his life. And the result, of course, for Enoch is, as it says, God took him. He's one of a couple of people in the Bible who didn't experience death. That his life was, he was merely whipped away in some miraculous sense. I don't know what, but it just shows you God's pleasure on his life as a man of prayer. Another is the man Moses. You know, Moses is the great deliverer of Israel from Egypt. What was, the, what was the central sort of power bank of Moses' life? There's a point in Exodus 33 where we, we learn about Moses' experience of um, being in the tent of meeting, and there, which is part of the sort of tabernacle system, the place of worship. It tells us that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. It says of all the people on earth who were alive at the time, Moses had a uniquely intimate relationship with God that they communicated as it were face to face like you communicate with one of your closest friends. There's no great mystery, is there, as to why this man not only wrote Five books, Genesis through to Deuteronomy, which changed the course of history, but also had an unbelievable impact in his own life and work. The next verses, or the next line says about Joshua, his sort of successor, says when Moses turned again into the camp, so whenever he left the tent of meeting where worship would happen with God and he walked out into the camp, it says his assistant Joshua who was a generation younger than him, the son of Nun, a young man, 
would not depart from the tent. I love that image. Moses has had dealings with God face to face. But his, his protege, Joshua, has such a desire and earnestness in his spirit to seek God, to know God in the way that Moses does, that he will remain on in the tent, communing with God, praying to God, seeking to hear God's voice, learning from him. And of course, Joshua also has a mighty leadership gift that later in life, after Moses is dead, he is the one who takes Israel into the land of Canaan. What's the source of all this incredible power and energy and momentum in their lives? Of course, it all flows from this experience of the intimacy with God, that they're men of prayer above all else. David would be probably the most famous example of all. You know how it says in about him when God reflects upon him. He says, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. You ask yourself, what was it that this man was plucked from being an obscure shepherd in the wilderness, chosen by God from total obscurity to be the next king of the nation of Israel, and there's really no mystery about answering that question. God, God tells you why. He says, because he's a man after my own heart. Which means, of course, that he wants to know God above everything. That his greatest driving motivation in life was to experience and know the presence of God. You get something of this from any number of the Psalms that he wrote. But here's one. Psalm 63. It says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I'll bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. I think one of my favorite examples is the man Daniel. Daniel is... One of, the exodus, one of the men who was taken into exile to be a servant to the Babylonian Empire. A young Hebrew boy. He was probably castrated. He was trained up in the ways of the Babylonians, learning languages, learning all their mystical arts. But the one thing he does not do is forget his God, even though he's living a thousand miles away in, in Babylon. And you remember that in the story of Daniel, there's a moment where the other kind of Daniel has unbelievable favor in his life. Despite being a Hebrew, he's, he's promoted to being one of the top rulers in the empire, in the Babylonian empire. And of course, when you're in leadership, there's jealousy all around you. And in one particular episode in his life, some of his enemies conspire to try and bring him down. They trick the emperor to make a law that it's, it's illegal to pray to anyone but the emperor. Because emperors in those days thought they were divine. And of course, the emperor doesn't really think too much about it and says, okay, we'll pass that into law. And as the story unfolds, we're told about Daniel. I love this line. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, the law, that you're not allowed to pray to anyone but, but the emperor, he says, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he'd done previously. Now, I think many Christians in our, in our context might pray more if it was illegal to pray. 
there'd be something of the defiance that would be, well, if I'm not allowed to do it, then I will do it. I will pray. But the thing about Daniel is that it wasn't an act of rebellion or defiance that motivated him because we're told that he did this as he had done previously. Daniel's whole life was marked by the rhythms of prayer that like clockwork, three times a day, despite having an incredible workload of leadership in a, in a, as an administrator in an, emperor, in an empire, his prayer life was unchanging and consistent. Of course, as the story unfolds, he's arrested and and, uh, and uh, goes through a trial on account of this illegal activity. Another example is Nehemiah. Some years later, when there are rumblings that you know, God wants to restore his people back to the land from which they've been exiled, there's a Nehemiah who serves in the empire under a man called Artaxerxes, And he hears just stories about the state of Jerusalem, his beloved city. And it's broken down in ruins at the time. And when he hears about the state of the city, which has so become a wasteland, it says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Again, Nehemiah, like all these men that I'm showing you, had an incredible, pivotal leadership role in the life and the history of Israel. But you ask yourself, where did the power and the potency and the favor from God come from on him? The answer is not hard to find, is it? Fasting, praying, weeping. In calling upon God, God selected and chose him and used him to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. So moving into the New Testament, shortly after Jesus' birth, there is, uh, as was the custom, he's, Jesus the baby is brought to the temple where he is to be um, dedicated and all the stuff they did, <laughs> circumcision and so on. But in the experiences of of Christ being presented at the temple, they come across a lady called Anna. Anna is an old woman. She's 84 years old. When she was young, she was married, but her husband died seven years into married life. And after that, she was a widow for the rest of her life. But what Luke tells us about her is that she lived as a widow and did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting with prayer night and day for decades. And I, you cannot help but see the connection, can you, between the experience of her prayerfulness and, in a sense, she's like a midwife for the deliverance of God in bringing the child Christ into the, into the world. Her prayerfulness over the decades gave birth to, as it were, the arrival of the Messiah, and she had the pleasure and privilege of seeing him before she died. Of course, we could go on listing examples all day. But the final one I want to mention to you is Christ himself. You think of all people who ever lived, if anyone didn't need to pray, it would be Jesus. But Luke tells us that he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Which is an encouragement, by the way, for any of you who find that you distracted when you pray. Even Jesus showed us that you need to find a place free from distractions so that you can experience 
real intimacy with the Father and speak to him in an unhindered way. But there he is. It was his custom. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the word through whom the whole of creation was made, feels that it is his need to withdraw to desolate places and speak to the Father. Friends, I don't think there's any mistake or any mystery here about what's going on when you see the lives of these men and women. The prayerfulness, intimacy with God results in incredible outpourings of the grace of God on their lives. You ask yourself, do you want to be a person who is used by God, who is useful to God, through whom the kingdom of God finds expression not only in your life, but also in your impact and ministry and effectiveness for him. I do not think that prayer is optional for those things. I think it has to be central. I think we all know this. Now, we've considered some of the prayerful individuals. I also want you to think about prayer among groups in the Bible. Because in a sense, this is a more rare thing. But this is what's being described in Acts 2. A whole church, thousands of people who together are devoted, as Luke puts it, to the prayers. This is a rare thing, but I actually don't think that it should be rare. So we need to think about what's going on. Why, why is this an unusual thing to see whole groups of people devoted together to pursue God in prayer? Why would that be a challenging thing for us as a church? I think some of... There's basically two reasons as far as I can tell. The first is that within any community, such as a a local church or the nation of Israel or whatever we're thinking about or whatever scale, you have mixture, don't you? Jesus described this. He said that in his church there would be mixture, that there there are those whose, whose lives are dedicated to him wholeheartedly, And there are those who are not. Sometimes whole communities can reflect one or other of those on that spectrum, but very often we're just a complete mix, aren't we? And in any given church, you'll, you'll find that there are those who are not willing to pay the price in spiritual devotion of any kind, who are not, maybe don't see Christ as clearly as others, and that is why they experience something of a spiritual lukewarmness. I think that the Bible teaches us that there's something about that spiritual vitality comes from seeing Christ. Not necessarily, of course, I don't mean physically seeing him, but spiritually perceiving him. And that when you see him, your heart is captivated by him. And that the degree to which you are captivated by Christ is the degree to which you have seen and understood and and are obsessed with, with him. And not everybody sees him in that way. Not everybody is heavenly minded, of course. And so in any given community, you have a spectrum, don't you, of spiritual desire and devotion. And of course, the other thing we've got to throw into this to understand why prayer particularly suffers is that prayer, as I've told you already, is not necessarily an easy thing, is it? You can see how crowds can be devoted to the stuff that is easy. We see this in the life of Jesus himself. Whole crowds, thousands of people will crowd around him for the easy stuff, which is listen to inspiring teaching from the mouth of the greatest teacher who ever lived. No one found that difficult to do. So thousands gather for that. 
Jesus experiences moments of amazing popularity punctuated through his ministry where thousands want to hear what he has to say. There's nothing difficult about that. There's a low bar for coming and listening. Even more so for when he feeds the crowds, you know, the miraculous feeding with the loaves and the fish, which happens on two occasions. It's a very low bar to want to be fed, right? Most people want free food. So it doesn't really express much about the spiritual devotion of the crowd that they come to him for food. And of course, we see that because when Jesus then teaches in the most offensive way possible, they all leave him. It shows you the spiritual temperature in the room, as it were. And of course, this means that when you consider groups of people, there is diversity among us, isn't there? Some are spiritually devoted, but others are not so. So you don't necessarily see that everybody wants to give to God, whether it's a tithe or some other reflection of a heart that belongs to God. That Not everybody wants to give because they haven't seen the importance that Christ owns it all. Not everybody wants to read the Bible and understand who God is. And of course, this is true also of prayer. That it's, it's not the case that all Christians have an equal desire. And I suppose it's, you know, an analogy. It's like in any given room, a bunch of us are not so good at eating well or exercising well. Even fewer of us are so devoted to these things that you could <clears throat> compete, uh, be competitive in sports and athletics and all the rest of it. Because there's a, you know, there's... There's basically a kind of a filter, isn't there? That there's the mass of us who are generally unhealthy and out of shape, and then there are us you can eliminate, can't you? And the same goes often with spiritual devotion. That you can see among churches and among groups of Christians that there is a spectrum going on. But friends, I, I don't I'm not trying to discourage you, because listen to me. I, I genuinely believe that this shouldn't be the case. I think that wherever you have a group of believers, a church. It ought to be the case that every one of us is prayerful and devoted to the prayers like we see here in, in Acts 2. Let me give you a few reasons for that. It's because of access, because of desire, and because of ability. What I mean by access is that the Bible tells us that every one of us who believes in Christ is equally able to enter the very presence and throne room of God confidently to speak to the Father. In fact, I'd put it, I'd put it like this. That all of you are as acceptable to the Father as Jesus is himself when you come to him to pray. I think this is why, for example, in Hebrews 4, it says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So he's speaking about the worthiness of Christ to be a redeemer for us. But then he says, here's the implication. Let us then, every one of us, all of you without fail, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, the logical implication of the gospel, the fact that Jesus Christ shed his blood to wash away all of your sins means that every one of you who bears the name of Christ, who calls yourself a Christian, who believes on him, every one of you has equal access to the Father and to the throne room of grace to pray. So if you have disqualified yourself and thought, I'll never be able to pray, 
or I'll never be able to pray well, or I'll never be able to pray consistently, all of this is untrue. You're acceptable to God. This is the message of Christianity. There is no spiritual elitism within the church. It is not the case that God only listens to certain mighty people who are particularly strong in prayer. But that God listens to each of us as his children because we are all, as it were, wearing the robes and the fragrance of Christ when we come into his presence. And it's not, in a sense, it's like he doesn't hear you, he hears Jesus. That's access. Think about desire. You know, I, I've, I've told you that I think prayer is not always easy. But at the same time, if you've come to know Christ, prayer is the most natural impulse of the Christian life. I've seen two babies born healthy, and both of them began to cry pretty early on in their lives. Seth actually didn't for a while. He just lay there in the hospital room with eyes wide open for three hours, just looking around the room. But Isla came out screaming at this blood-curdling scream, and it reflected their personalities, actually, quite profoundly. But, um, but what, what I'm trying to tell you is that you don't teach a child. You do not need to teach them to call out, to cry out. I think I heard, it was Spurgeon who said that the most authentic expression of prayer is a cry. All through the Psalms, you, just, you hear prayers being described as cries, It means that the minute you have genuine spiritual life, authentic spiritual life, you are now God's child. And the first thing, the most natural thing, the most natural impulse you have is to cry out to him. And God implants that desire in you. And I think that part of the reason for that, of course, is that your relationship with him has now changed in a profound way. You remember how Jesus, in a quite revolutionary way, taught us to pray, our Father, Abba, almost, almost like Dad or Daddy. Our Father who's in heaven. He taught us to relate to God like a child does to a father in a most intimate way. And in, in Romans, Paul talks about this, this new relationship we have with God. He says that you have received a spirit of adoption as sons or as children by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So do you have any, do you have that desire, that impulse to pray? That's God birthed in you. And I was listening to one of my favorite preachers or one of my spiritual heroes is a man called Martin Lloyd-Jones who was pastor of a church just across the river uh, back in the middle of the last century. And when he was training ministers, teaching them about the life of ministry, one of the things he said was that he'd made it a rule in his life to follow every, obey every impulse to prayer or to pray. You know how at random times you can feel something of the urge, the cry that wells up, I must pray. Sometimes you can suppress that and ignore it. But every Christian experiences that. And what he's saying is every time you experience that, you must obey. Because that desire is God, God birth. It's an evidence that you're a child of God. Don't ignore it. We all have access. We all have desire. And here's the other thing that should encourage you. We all have the ability to pray. You have the Holy Spirit in you. I think this is, this is the fundamental explanation of what we're seeing going on in this church in Acts 2. 
Why is it that 3,000 people suddenly, almost overnight, went from being, you know, fairly cold in their spiritual walk, they certainly didn't know God in the way that they came to know him, to suddenly being this community that was pulsating with spiritual life in which every person in the community was devoted and passionate to prayer. Regular, consistent in it. And friends, I don't, again, I don't think there's a great mystery about why this is true. The answer comes in the fact that the Holy Spirit was moving among, among them. That God himself had poured his own presence out on them and elicited from their heart the longing, the desire to be a prayerful people. It's always the Spirit of God who moves us to pray. It's not a natural thing in the sense of a worldly thing. It's always a spiritual thing. Again, in Romans 8, Paul puts it like this. He says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groan, for us with groanings too deep for words. In other words, some of the most authentic, genuine, even world-shaping prayers are the ones that you don't even know how to articulate, but are rather just the groan or the cry that comes up from inside you because the Holy Spirit is at work inside you. They can be wordless, but they are genuine because you have the ability by the power of God to pray. And friend, this is not, again, an elite thing. It's not that some Christians have the Spirit and some do not. All of us, if you are Christian, have the Spirit of God in us by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Therefore, prayer should be the most normal, natural thing that we see in the life of our church. Just remembering how in James 5, when James, the brother of Jesus, is reflecting on the prayer life of Elijah, the prophet who lived centuries and centuries earlier, who prayed and it stopped raining and then prayed again three and a half years later and the rain began as a way of God chastising the people. The way James describes Elijah's spiritual life, he said, Elijah was a man just like us and he prayed and it didn't rain. And he prayed again and it did. James wants us, every believer, to know, even if you are a new believer, even if you have been a backslidden believer, even if you think that you are the most, the the pygmy of spiritual believers, the weakest of all, he says, Elijah was just like you. And he prayed and look what happened. What would it look like, friends, if if we as a church walked in, in this, became an increasingly prayerful community, individually in your own walk with God, also corporately at our monthly gatherings and in our Sunday prayer meetings before services, and even, of course during our times of worship. What does it look like to be devoted to prayer? What are the characteristics that mark people whose lives are devoted to prayer like they were in Acts 2. I want to quickly describe some of the things that I think are true of you when, when you're devoted. I think there's, first of all, persistence. I read to you Psalm 130 at the beginning. He says there, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. When people are devoted to prayer, they are willing to wait 
in order to see God answer the prayers that they are bringing to him. Jesus taught the importance of persistence in prayer. I think this is greatly encouraging because most of us have experienced the discouraging aspect of prayers that haven't been answered. And Jesus is telling us this shouldn't be surprising to you. It says in Luke 18 that Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart, which tells us, of course, that Luke assumes that we will lose heart from time to time. But Jesus taught persistence in prayer. He told a parable about a widow. He keeps knocking on the door of a judge in a city so that she will get justice for her cause. And if an unrighteous judge will listen to a a widow who keeps knocking, he's saying that the Father will listen to us when we are persistent in prayer. I wait for the Lord, the psalm says. There'll be constancy in prayer is another thing, which is slightly different to persistence. But he says in the psalm, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. A watchman's job is to wait for the morning. Or a watchman is on duty, perhaps, until the morning comes. So he's excited for when the morning comes because then he can go off duty. There's an eagerness, but there's also consistency in it. And he's saying, my prayer life is more consistent than the predictability of a man who wants to clock off and go to bed. Paul puts it like this in 1 Thessalonians 5. He just simply said three words, pray without ceasing. The temptation always is to pray in fits and starts, isn't it? To go through seasons of prayerfulness and then to give up for a while. And it's slightly different from persistence, calling on God for a particular thing. Constancy in prayer means that there's a sense in which we become a little bit more like a metronome. You know, a metronome's job is just to click in time. Tick, 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 tick. And I think that the devotion of churches should be somewhat like that. That there's predictability and constancy and unchanging nature to the way we express devotion to God. We're not one minute passionate and the next minute completely off the, off the rails. But there is just walking in step with the Spirit, day after day, week after week. And friends, I'd encourage you personally and as a church to seek to develop that kind of constancy in your prayer life. That there's, there's a predictability and a rhythm to it. You start in a way that's manageable. If I can just pray a few moments in a day, but do it consistently, that's far better than praying once a week and trying really hard to pray for a while and then giving up the next day. Another thing is that their prayers will be, the prayers of a devoted people will be believing prayers. He says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word, I hope. The power to believe God for answers to prayer always rests on believing his word. There's no faith without the word of God. And you cannot ask for things without a sense that God has promised them. Jesus put it like this. He says, therefore... Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And I don't think he was giving a carte blanche possibility of asking for anything that you can possibly imagine and thinking, well, then it's yours. Who knows what goes through our imaginations and what we might ask God for if that were the case. He's saying rather that when you ask in a believing way, where does that belief come from? Where does the faith come from? Well, it always comes, the Bible teaches us, from the word of God. 
And when you therefore are praying in line with the promises of God through Scripture, then you can pray with faith, and such prayers will elicit a response from the living God. Here's the fourth thing. Prayer that's devoted will be rich. In Acts 2, did you notice how it didn't say that they were devoted to prayer? It says they were devoted to the prayers. Why do you think he put it like that? I think the answer is because these Jewish Christians were used to walking in certain rhythms of prayer, certain set hours of prayer, certain set prayers that they would pray together, the prayers. Some of them would be psalms. And what it teaches us is that the life of the church is sometimes just rehearsing ancient prayers and the richness of the scripture can fuel our prayer life. If you're somebody who, you know, you get in your room for your own personal time with God and you try to pray and nothing comes out, you don't know what to pray. The first thing you should learn to do is pray the scriptures because then you'll never have a shortage of content, if you want to put it like that, of richness and diversity to your prayer life if you learn how to pray the Bible, even line by line. This is one of the reasons why we're doing this particular model of Bible reading, the community Bible reading, and using the journals, because it teaches us to pray what we're reading. This is why the Bible provides us with prayers. It's why Paul gives us a window into the things that he prayed for for the churches. And generally speaking, it's not the stuff that you would normally pray for churches. It surprises me when I read about what Paul's prayer life was, the content of it. And I think if only we learned to pray like Paul or pray like David in the Psalms, our prayers would be so much richer, wouldn't they? And there's a richness that characterizes people who are devoted to prayer. You see them grow in it. There's an infancy in prayer, which is just like the baby coming out crying. But as you grow in prayer throughout the course of your life, you develop vocabulary, you develop imagination, you develop faith, you develop a robustness and strength so that your prayer lives become richer and, and also more authentic as you grow older in Christ. Here's the last thing that characterizes them. I think it's authenticity. The psalm simply puts it like this. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. It's never, I don't think devotion to prayer is ever mindless. Or just dutiful. It has to be real. Jesus was very clear on this. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. You can babble all day praying empty, heartless prayers. But he says, rather, don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. In other words, I think, he's saying that prayer is heart-to-heart communication. The Father perceives your deepest desires, and prayer is an articulation of your deepest desires. And when people are devoted to prayer, there is boldness, there is something very real, there's something very raw about their prayers. It doesn't feel like they're just saying the same old phrases again and again. It feels like you're getting a window into the very soul of a person when they pray in this way, or when they're devoted to prayer in this way. In fact, one of the best ways you personally can learn to pray is by asking someone whose prayer life you respect and and recognize to pray with you once a week. Listen to the way they pray. Pray with them. And if you walk with them for a while in prayer in this way, you'll experience a richness to your prayer life and an authentic way of crying to God like this. Friends, I'm trying to 
inspire and encourage you to give yourselves to this. Let me just close by reminding you or telling you about a couple of stories of how God answers in this way. Because God says that when, when his people call on him humbly, he will hear and he will act. One example comes from the life of a man who lived in the 1800s called C.H. Spurgeon. He pastored a church very near to where we are today. Initially up at New Park Street, further around the river, and later at Elephant and Castle, and they moved sites. And Spurgeon said this about prayer. He said, the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting a graceometer, and from it we may judge of the amount of divine working among our people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be slothfulness in prayer, a laziness in prayer. Spurgeon's church was one of the most impactful in the history of the world. It was probably the, the first sort of proper mega church. They had something like 6,000 would gather every Sunday in a great building which subsequently burned down. You still see the front of it over at Elephant Castle. Every Monday night, they'd have 1,500 people gather for their prayer meeting consistently. During the services, they had what they called the boiler room, which was that while the service was running, a number of people would be downstairs in the basement praying for the work of God. And I cannot help but connect the outlandish effect of Spurgeon's life and ministry and of that church with its life of prayer. Spurgeon himself trained up hundreds of men for ministry, planted tens, potentially hundreds of churches. You drive all through London, you'll see churches that were planted under Spurgeon's leadership and ministry. Wherever you see a Baptist church with the kind of Greek columns out the front, which is a common design of the time, almost always there's a foundation stone that says it was laid by Spurgeon. And your, your, your skin tingles, doesn't it, when you think about, wow, the impact of God through a man and through his church when the church gave itself to prayer. It changed the complexion of Christianity in this country in those years. I could go on telling you stories, but our time is pretty much gone. Probably went a while ago. One book that's inspired me on this is by Jim Simbler, who wrote the book Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. He talks about going to a church in Brooklyn in the 1970s, Brooklyn Tabernacle. At the time, there was less than, well, it went down to about less than 20 people in a rundown building with no money. And he was, you know, a young minister, and he became deflated very, very quickly with the work that was in front of him. He came to a point where he says, one day I told the Lord that I would rather die than merely tread water throughout my career in the ministry, always preaching about the power of the word and the spirit, but never seeing it. I really resonate with that. You don't, no one wants to have an empty ministry. But then he, he talks about how prayer changed the life of, and the course and the destiny of that church. He says, talking to God one day, he felt in his spirit that God was speaking 
And these are the words that he wrote down. If you and your wife will lead my people to pray and call upon my name, you will never lack for something fresh to preach. I will supply all the money that's needed, both for the church and for your family. And you'll never have a building large enough to contain the crowds that I will send in response. The story of Brooklyn Tabernacle is the story of God answering those prayers. They began a weekly prayer meeting. And on the back of that prayer meeting, all kinds of broken people in Brooklyn began to come to know Jesus. Drug addicts, people caught in all kinds of lifestyle issues who were broken, damaged, and utterly destroyed by their own sin. And they came to know Jesus. And the church became thousands of people. Four services on a Sunday in a building that couldn't contain the crowds that were coming. It's just one example. (coughs) Christians, I want to encourage you to resolve yourself in your heart at a minimum to find a way to pray with others, even if you struggle in your own day-to-day life. To commit yourself to pray with the church to pray in your home groups, to pray in our monthly gatherings, to pray before services. That we might see God do extraordinary things here. If you're not a Christian, as I said at the start, the most important thing for you is to have a relationship with God. You can't pray until you know Him. Because prayer is an expression of intimacy. It's a relationship. It's walking with Him. Should we bow our heads? Let's respond to God now. Father, we thank you that you've given prayer to us as a gift. I pray that Firstly, that you'll remove all the sense of guilt and of condemnation that people feel about their own inadequacy in prayer. And replace it with hope and inspiration that every one of us can be mighty in prayer. And I ask you, Lord God, to birth within us as a church also the corporate longing to seek you. May we see more of your power in the days to come to change and transform lives and to impact the city and the world that you be glorified. Amen.